Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure today to welcome Matt McDonald, who's a reader in international relations from Pulsis at UQ. He's doing lots of different things at the moment, working on an ALC project, now suspended, I think, but we'll be working soon on an ALC project on uh, security implications of climate change. He's here today to talk to us about his new book coming out soon with Cambridge University Press on ecological security. Thanks for that, Ian. Thanks so much for inviting me and thanks everyone for coming along. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered. This presentation is about this ecological security book that is coming out next month with Cambridge and that has taken quite a while to put together. In setting myself the task of trying to give you a general snapshot of what is covered in the book and what the book's all about, in the context of half an hour I'm almost certainly going to fail either in terms of timing, in which case Ian I'm sure will let me know, or in terms of missing out core things from the book itself. But for a while I've been working on this question of the relationship between climate change in particular and security and working on the assumption that actually the core thrust of most of my work in this area is that what matters is less while there's a lot of focus on exactly how does an issue like climate change contribute to or threaten security is it presented and constructed as a security issue most of the work I do is focused on the argument that actually what matters is less whether something is securitised than actually the first principles of that linkage, so whose security is viewed as under threat and what sort of responses does that then encourage in turn. So rather than suggest that actually the most important question is whether an issue is presented or ticks all the relevant boxes of security, I've set back in my work and tried to make the case that actually what really matters consequentially in terms of the practices that follow from the way in which we depict an issue like climate change as a security issue is less the term security or threat and more the central assumptions of around whose security are we actually focus on here because the difference in practices between a focus on national security that's about the territorial preservation of the nation state from external usually military threat versus a focus on human security is clearly evident in terms of the sets of practices that that encourages. So all that got me to the point of thinking, well, if there are these different discourses of climate change and security, if there are these different ways of making sense of that relationship, and these are consequential in terms of the practices that follow, the next logical step beyond just mapping how some of those discourses actually function and what practices they encourage was to say, well, what does a good or progressive approach to that relationship look like if we're increasingly recognising that climate change constitutes a security issue generally? What constitutes a progressive approach to that particular relationship? What set of principles is it built upon? And that's really what this project tries to do. In simple terms, to set it up a little bit, the idea that climate change is or constitutes a security issue has become more and more acknowledged in both the academic and practical worlds. We saw the first debate about the international security implications of climate change in the UN Security Council was in 2007. There was another one in 2011, but to give a sense of the momentum around this, we've seen four over the course of the last four years, so 2018, 19, 2021, there's been discussions about the deliberations about the security implications of climate change. We've also seen the establishment of a climate security mechanism to coordinate UN responses 
Lots of different countries acknowledging that climate change constitutes a security issue. Shirley Scott, in an analysis that she developed a few years ago, suggested that of states that actually develop national security strategy statements or documents, over 70% acknowledge climate change as a security threat. And increasingly you're seeing states, not just the usual suspects of states trying to promote action through the UN Security Council, like Germany or more recently Sweden, for example, but a range of other countries like New Zealand formally acknowledging the security implications of climate change and of course Australia had a, a Senate inquiry into this issue that commenced in 2017 and responded in 2018. So there's a general sense that we see at the international level, at the level of nation states and their response to climate change, and then the veritable cottage industry of think tanks, especially based in DC, but in countries like Germany and the UK, really trying to make the case that climate change constitutes a security threat, that it's a so-called threat multiplier that creates that doesn't necessarily cause conflict but creates conditions in which conflict becomes more likely for a range of different analyses. And, of course, media reports on conflict. In places like Darfur and Syria, there's another cottage industry around the particular role of climate change in each of those particular cases, but all this has really strengthened the idea that it's, it's very difficult to escape, no matter which way we cut that relationship, it's difficult to escape the idea that at some level we are talking about a connection that's increasingly established and that is, for want of a better word, securitised. I think this relationship, once we acknowledge this, this momentum behind this connection, it raises analytical questions about, well, exactly how do we imagine pathways between climate change and conflict, and there's lots of people researching on that particular issue. But it also raises really important normative questions. For some who are deeply sceptical of anything that looks like a military engagement in a political issue, especially an environmental issue, it's almost inherently problematic that this is presented as a security issue and that defence is increasingly mobilising around the idea we need to prepare our infrastructure, our training, our equipment for the types of future conditions and contexts of climate change that they're going to be used. We need to recognise we're going to be doing more humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions. If you're really cynical, and lots of people are, it's possible to basically then just say, well, that's inherently problematic. This is about militaries trying to demonstrate their continued relevance in the face of what is a genuinely global or transnational issue. And this maps on to the concerns, of course, that people raise about the normative implications of securitisation more broadly. This idea that representing an issue as a security issue is problematic. This is central to the securitisation theory itself, of course, which from the start was as much a normative statement about the desirability of an avoiding situations in which you take issues out of normal liberal deliberation and politics, whatever that means, and deal with them in a manner that characteristic of illiberal measures, exceptional measures, emergency where voice, some voices are silenced and others are empowered. This raises normative questions at that level, at this question about what the framing of security actually does politically. You know, for some it's great because it mobilises attention, maybe it speaks to particular audiences that would otherwise be unmoved by things like what about your grandchildren or, you know, what about other living beings, what about the impoverished in developing countries least responsible for the problem of climate change and most vulnerable to its effects. 
There's apparently lots of constituents that go, yeah, no, they'll be fine. But maybe for some of those audiences, this language of security and the, is mobilising in ways that it wouldn't otherwise be. But that still raises this broader question that does that then mean that you have a problematic connection between climate change and security? And as noted in the work that I've done, I make the case that what matters isn't necessarily whether this relationship is presented as existing, but exactly how this relationship is understood. And that's grounded on this idea of, in the book and in earlier work, I make a distinction between different discourses of climate security based on their choice of the referent object. So are we talking about the preservation of the nation-state? Are we talking about international security defined in terms of international society or stability? Are we talking about human security? Or in the book I make a case that actually there are normative limits to all of those discourses when it comes to an issue like climate change and that actually the book makes a case for ecological security. One of the challenges with this project, if you are trying to make a case that actually we should focus on ecosystem resilience, which, spoiler alert, is the end ultimate focus of this ecological security project, you necessarily have to engage with some of the literature in that space about the appropriateness or otherwise of how you define ecosystems and how you make sense of something like resilience or their capacity to function in the face of change all the way through to your understanding of the particular theory of security. There's a lot of moving parts in some ways to this project. But the case that I'd make, again to reiterate, is that the way in which we link climate change and security really matters in terms of the sets of practices that it encourages. Of course, there's nothing inevitable about the need necessarily to make sense of what constitutes appropriate responses to climate change. There's nothing inevitable about grounding those in terms of security response. We could, of course, you know, for some it's unnecessary, for others it's actively unhelpful in terms of that danger of militarisation. Some have argued that it actually hasn't been that central even to mobilising responses. In some ways, the book has to deal with this head-on, the question of why engage with this question of responses to climate change in terms of security, especially if I'm raising concerns about the traditional instruments and institutions that deliver security. The argument that I end up advancing in the book is that ultimately security is still politically powerful and it's still central to the political legitimacy of key actors in the international system. It's invariably the basis, it is fundamental to the social contract, it's an abs- the promise of providing security is, for want of a better term, why states exist. And similarly, the UN in general, it defines its purpose primarily in terms of the maintenance of international peace and stability and security. So you have this sense already that key institutions exist for the promise of providing security. That's one of many reasons why then security and the question of what constitutes a security issue is potentially quite politically consequential and suggests the need to engage rather than escape it or just avoid that linkage. The project then moves on to say, well, let's engage then and with security, but rather than as someone like Ken Booth does when he engages this and says, well, that's a, that's a bad understanding of security, here's a good one. When he says, here's a good one in terms of emancipation and says we should understand security in terms of emancipation, he basically ends up in a position of saying this is real security. That's not really the way ecological security works for me. It's less about 
this constitutes real security more that it constitutes a more progressive and defensible discourse of security. So that's a distinction I'll probably want to make in that instance. In this really simplistic typology, this heuristic advice, this is drawn from a few years ago that sort of provides a foundation in some ways to some of the claims that I'm making. These are the pathologies, if you like, of these different discourses of climate security and the types of practices, crucially, that they encourage. So if our focus is on national security, it tends to encourage a focus on the ways in which the traditional mechanisms of the nation-state can provide for the maintenance of sovereignty and territorial integrity. And crucially, the case that I would make is that Often the practices then that that encourages are less significant mitigation action, so addressing the problem at its core, and more the danger that it will encourage focuses on how do we insulate the nation-state from the effects of climate change. This is one thing that we could say, well, it's not necessary that states understand you know, states could have a preventive agenda in that context. There's a famous example from the Pentagon, though, that in 2003 that I'm fond of invoking, that the Pentagon commissioned a report on the national security implications of an abrupt climate change scenario in which they basically uh, asked these theorists to come up, well, what, what would some of the challenges be for a state like the United States and what might some of the responses be? And one of the most telling, really outrageous in many ways, was that... For countries that are relatively wealthy and fairly self-sufficient in terms of access to at least to primary goods like the United States, it might be possible that other countries where there's acute vulnerability, they might have increasing levels of displacement. Those people might ultimately come to try to get into the United States. One response of a country like the United States could be to build more effective capacity to prevent people getting over the border to take advantage of the relative position of strength that the United States has in this context. This is, I'd like to think, an example that we could all readily acknowledge as a perverse response to a particular implication of climate change. The danger of displacement is viewed not as problematic in and of itself for the people who are displaced, but to the extent that they could actually come to our country and penetrate and threaten sovereignty and territorial integrity. So that's, I think, one example, and while a, an extreme example, it is broadly consistent with the ethical register of a national security discourse that is about how do we preserve sovereignty and territorial integrity and is one of the inherent dangers then that we're looking at, that if we view climate change through the lens of national security, we might end up endorsing approaches that are about insulating the state from the worst effects of climate change and not necessarily dealing with the problems at its source. This has also been acknowledged fairly recently by the UN rapporteur for extreme poverty and human rights in 2019. He talked about the dangers of a climate apartheid where you would see relatively wealthy states basically increasingly, rather than throwing the kitchen sink at mitigation action, they might pivot to how do we best insulate our state from some of the effects of climate change, leaving vulnerable countries that are more directly exposed, least responsible for the problem and least able to adapt effectively to it, essentially, in the wind. So, again, that's one of the pathologies that this book tries to respond to and says, well, if, there are, if some of these linkages are problematic in terms of the practices that they encourage, 
what constitutes a linkage between climate change and security that might be defensible in terms of the practices and encourage and those first principles that it orients towards. So in different ways, I walk through, the book walks through this claim about security, about the broad link between climate change and security and about the pathology of these different discourses in the first couple of chapters. And the chapter on climate security discourses goes through, yes, here's the problem with that national security discourse, but also talks about some of the limits of international security and even human security discourses as well, where it basically says, look, if our focus is on the maintenance of international peace and stability, there is a danger that our orientation is towards the maintenance of an international system that has allowed, at best, if not directly contributed towards a situation which climate change is the cluster cusp that it currently represents. So in that sense, we might orient towards the maintenance of an international status quo that simply isn't fit for purpose, especially if our focus is on international stability and managing conflict rather than necessarily broader claims about what constitutes justice. And here I found myself going back into some of the old English school stuff about the difference between a pluralist and solidarist account of the international society. The human security discourse, I make the case, so here the focus is, well, rather than focusing on institutions and their preservation, let's focus on what constitutes an immediate threat to people. And this is clearly progressive in terms... It's clearly more likely to focus on mitigation action. But the focus here remains on the vulnerability of currently living human populations. And it doesn't really give us a framework for thinking about the acute vulnerability of future generations or other living beings whose vulnerability is a product not simply of the effects of climate change but also the inability to contribute to decision-making about that response to it. In some ways, that's the foundation. There are limits with all these discourses. The only answer is then to pivot to something else, which in this book I make a case for, ecological security. Ecological security, as I understand it, is oriented towards ecosystem resilience and with it the rights and needs of the most vulnerable across time, space and species. So with time, we're talking about future generations. Space, we're talking about not just nation states, but the vulnerability of people throughout the world. And with species, we're talking as well about other living beings. I make the case that we need to focus on functionality of ecosystems themselves in the context of change. And that's actually one of the reasons Again, there's a cottage industry around resilience and some of the limitations of thinking, of embracing resilience as a concept. But of course, resilience, what it allows us to do is focus on this question of understanding the continued functionality of ecosystems, even in the face of change. One of the challenges with earlier accounts of what we might term ecological security, it tended to focus on conservation or balance and maintenance. The challenge, of course, when we talk about climate change is that climate change is already happening, has already happened to some degree. So we need to conceptualise what it is that's worth preserving or defending in security terms, but that can still come to terms with that reality of ongoing change. And that's why I endorse the idea of resilience in that context. 
And in particular, this is even more prominent in the context of the Anthropocene, the need to basically move beyond an idea of preserving either human collectives or institutional arrangements, whether it's national, international or human security. In the context of the Anthropocene, this sort of mooted geological era in which humanity has a demonstrable impact on Earth systems functions themselves, it becomes imperative to not just think in terms of the contribution of humanity to change, but recognise the hubris at the heart of modern thought that we are somehow separate and separable from the natural world in which we exist and that provides the conditions for our survival. So in that context, I've used some of the debates about the Anthropocene to help me make a case for why it's necessary to focus on ecological security, something that comes to terms with this interrelationship between humanity and natural systems, for example. If we remember some of the practices that's encouraged in some of those other discourses, ecological security focuses on urgent mitigation action to try to minimise harm. This is especially when we think that when we're focusing on ecosystems, some ecosystems are acutely vulnerable even to temperature increases of one degree. So this is the case with some coral reef systems, for example, in that context it becomes important to recognise the imperative of urgent mitigation action. There's also, though, clearly a case for some degree of adaptation, especially in terms of preserving or protecting the lives of vulnerable people in different parts of the world. And even more controversially, it's difficult to wholly reject a case at some level for some types of geoengineering interventions, at least on ethical grounds at the first principle level. Of course, this is really complicated and it's fascinating that in some ways geoengineering now seems to occupy a space in debates about responses to climate change that has parallels to where adaptation was about 10 to 15 years ago. So 10 to 15 years ago, anyone who was talking about adaptation, that was seen as giving up on the problem of climate change because all you're doing is trying to protect yourself. Now that some degree of climate change is locked in, and we know there's going to be these effects. It's, of course, entirely legitimate to focus on adaptation. It feels like geoengineering now is at the point that adaptation was a little while ago in terms of these debates where some see this as still inherently incredibly problematic in terms of the practices that, that it encourages, whether it's just in terms of playing God with Earth system functions or whether it's the question of who actually governs and manages these things or whether it's the effects we can't quite anticipate in terms of ecosystems. Because one of the difficult things with this particular framework of thinking in terms of ecological security is that ecosystems themselves are incredibly complicated and it becomes really difficult to anticipate. This is one of the things that makes climate change in general a wicked policy problem. It's very difficult to specifically say when temperature hits this level, this will be the effect on this ecosystem or on this species. And it's for that reason that there's enough space for some sceptics to say, well, we've always had bushfires. Why is this particular bushfire linked, linked to climate change? The book itself, after going through, here are different discourses of security, the book itself is then divided into a few different chapters. And these, in some ways, I try to map onto Andrew Linklater's theory of political communication. He makes this distinction between... Uh, sorry, political community, I should say. He makes this distinction between sociological, normative and praxeological frameworks for imperatives of critical theory. And one's about saying... This is where we are and how we understand the conditions of possibility at present, that sociological question. 
the normative is this is what we should aim for, and then the praxeological is essentially this is how we get there. And in, to some degree, that's how the latter stages of the book are structured. After coming to this question of how are climate change and security linked, what are the pathologies of these different discourses, I then go through this is why I've, this is the driving force between this particular focus on the origin of threats and why I'm focusing on ecosystems and their resilience, and then go through what sets of means might we imagine as appropriate in terms of advancing security, what types of agents would be involved in this process. And then the final chapter before the conclusion is essentially a chapter that says, well, what are the political possibilities? Is this whole idea of ecological security dead in the water before we begin? Because it requires powerful actors to invest in something like orientation towards future generations and other living beings. And that particular chapter draws on imminent critique as well as other frameworks to try to make a case that actually we can see already elements of the types of sensibilities that ecological security would encourage that are already evident in the ways in which states respond to some of the... and other actors respond to some of these issues. In very simple terms, then, ecological security is about the resilience of ecosystems themselves in the face of change. There's a need to focus on this functionality of ecosystems. Urgent mitigation action is central, but with some role as well for adaptation and even geoengineering. All actors with capacity to generate avoidable harm have some degree of responsibility in terms of agency, but that attribution of agency is really defined primarily in terms of capacity, drawing on arguments about distributive justice in that context, and recognising that we can't just reduce this question to one of individual willingness to change patterns of behaviour, given how fundamentally our individual choice options are determined by broader structural factors when it comes to climate change. So things like it's very challenging, as those of you who have solar panels would know, very difficult to just live off grid and we can't necessarily, at least at the moment in a country like Australia, it's not necessarily possible for us to just decide we will be entirely carbon neutral in terms of the production of electricity. These are choices made at the political level that inform the range of options available to us. So some of the challenges in this context include the difficulty of weighing or competing issues or concerns, the scale of uncertainty about the effects of how ecosystems will respond, whether some will be quite resilient in the face of even significant levels of change and others will essentially be fundamentally compromised when we see even minor levels of change. All that encourages us to focus on precaution which is one of those principles that I'd say actually this is fundamentally consistent with an ecological security sensibility if you like even if it's something that was endorsed through the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change way back in 1992. So is one of those imminent um, possibilities for drawing on as a basis of support for this particular project. Of course, a lack of political purchase for this, it's hard enough in some ways to advance a case that we should be concerned about even vulnerable people within our own country when thinking about a response to climate change. And this is something that the book tries to tackle head-on, in part because one of the most prominent early interventions on ecological security was by John Barnett, it's a very good book where he says, you know, this is the most defensible discourse, but it's ultimately a bystander on the... Con- it's so foreign to existing axes of power that it's on their sidelines, it doesn't really end up entering into any sort of discussion about how we should understand, how we should orient 
our understanding of the relationship between climate change and environmental change broadly and security. So in the book I tried to tackle this head on and say well here are some of the resources that we can draw upon and some bases for hope in that particular context. My response to some of those challenges there are that these challenges aren't necessarily particular to this approach. So if we think of the way in which defence acquisition debates end up in really speculative terms about what future axes of threat are going to be, so it's not like we focus on national security, all these problems are reduced in the process. The, the scale of the climate crisis demands new ways of thinking and identifying ways of overcoming those challenges rather than essentially say this is so foreign to existing institutions therefore we need to abandon it and come up with something that's more discernible to them. In some ways the book works from the premise that we need to invert this and say if this is an appropriate way of responding to this problem then how do we get institutions to address it or how do we come up with new institutional arrangements that can advance those particular concerns. The book also then makes a case for dialogue, humility and reflexivity is central to this relationship between on the one hand these big overarching principles and how they play out in practice. So the idea that we need this constant dialogue between those who are trying to advance ecological security in any given context. We need to be humble about what we can claim and about the types of practices that we're willing to undertake. And we need to be reflexive in the sense of being aware of the possibility, especially with things like geoengineering, but also given the complexity of ecosystems themselves, reflexive in the sense that some practices that we thought would be consistent with those ends aren't necessarily. Um, that's where we're at, uh, very broad brushstrokes, and I can give more detail in each of those things. Special points to anyone who can identify the structure on the image itself of the book. Some people know that one. I took that photo from Girraween National Park, so that's the Sphinx from as taken from Turtle Rock. Uh, they let me run with that. It was either that or something else that they were going to generate themselves. Ultimately, the contemporary challenge of climate change requires us to rethink the way we think of security of linking the two, and it's harder to reject the idea of any form of linkage between climate change and security. If we are then making that distinction, we need to be clear about what constitutes a progressive approach to that connection in terms of the practices that it encourages. And here I make the case of orienting towards the resilience of ecosystems themselves. There are big challenges and dilemmas associated with how we move beyond anthropocentrism in this context, how we deal with questions of uncertainty and complexity, how we prioritise threats and responses, how do we work out that actually this response to climate change that orients towards future generations is more important than some immediate sacrifice in the contemporary. Those are big and challenging questions in political theory generally, but particularly in this context. The politics of getting there, how do we move from where we are now, a situation in which states like Australia are reluctant even to acknowledge the national security implications of climate change, much less endorse an approach that is oriented towards other living beings. And then there are broader questions around how applicable this discourse is. I think there's some purchase in the context of COVID to thinking about this as the disease of the Anthropocene in some ways, but also things like nuclear challenges. There's some applicability to those things, but whether ecological security as a project, as a broad sensibility, if you like, applies beyond the issue of environmental change is, of course, one of the challenges possibly for future research as well. For more Griffith University podcasts, 
go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.